Good morning. It's wonderful to be here. As you heard, I was here a part of this community a long time ago for 15 months, and I enjoyed every single day that I was here, and I learned so much from this community and from uh, many of you that has helped me to be a pastor in Denver, so I'm very, very grateful for that time and uh, grateful to be back. And uh, I was here as an interim pastor, and during your interim, and, and that's a time of discernment, right? A time of group discernment. It's a time that can be scary and confusing, but that's the point. That's why we go through those times in our lives as people and as a church. And here I am back again during an interim time. And uh, I just want to say that that last interim time had such a wonderful, successful conclusion uh, when you called Dwayne Johnson as your pastor, that I'm absolutely confident that this time will be just as successful and end up in, in even in just a wonderful way. I can't wait to see what God plans to do with this uh, community next. And I've been asked to come back and talk about discernment which is a fairly easy topic because it's really just making choices, you know. We make, trying to make good choices, but we all make bad choices. I made a bad choice 17 years ago when I moved from Connecticut to Houston and brought 50 sweaters. <laughs> oh, for when winter comes, you know. But we try to make good choices and even though there is a, a cutting-edge, high-tech tool that can help us to make good choices, I, I, don't, I don't recommend it because discernment is really a spiritual process. Not only making good choices, making holy choices. So I want to begin by thinking about some of the, the ways we make choices, because we make hundreds every day, and there's kind of a typical way we make a lot of our choices. And we learn that at our optician's office. You go, you get your eye exam, you see something like this, and your optician asks, which is better, left or right? That was not a rhetorical question. With left, oh, it switched. <laughs> I'm trying to confuse you. If, if you can, switch it back. Okay, now, which is better, left or right? Left. Good, now the next one. Which is better, left or right? Left. Good, now the next slide. <laughs> which is better, left or right? Okay, next slide. Which is better, left or right? Left, next slide. Which is better? Next one. Which is better, left or right? Okay, Another, one more, two more, I think. What's next? <laughs> Which is better, left or right? 
Okay, and we have one more. Which is better, left or right? Okay. Now, I'd like to make a few observations. First, didn't seem like any of you had any trouble making up your minds. You knew automatically, instinctively, which one you thought was better. Second, you didn't always agree. There were a few that there was pretty unanimous, but you, you, had, you had different choices, even though it seemed perfectly obvious to you which was better. And third, that makes sense, because we're all different, probably wouldn't expect anything else. And what reveals underneath that is the way that most of us made our choices is we instantly saw which side we identify with that felt more like us, that felt more like what we are familiar with and comfortable with, and the one that was like us, we automatically said was better. Okay? The one that fed into our ego identification. And that's human nature, and I'm not scolding anyone. And for a lot of decisions, that's probably appropriate, and these were fairly trivial examples. But what if we apply that same methodology uh, to choices like these, like this slide? Which is better, male? Really? Really? You want male or female? Which is better? Wow, this is. Let, let's let's try another. Which is better? You know, nine o'clock was the same way, and this, these are supposed to be harder, okay? Black or white, which is better? Young or old? Which is better? Next. Rich? Rich or poor? See, we have the same, many of us, kind of instinctive, identification with one side or the other, and maybe part of our human nature to say, well, the one that's like us is better. But those of us who try to follow God, we might get tripped up here. And what was it the optician said after all? Didn't she actually say better, worse, or about the same. Because we might have that instinctive identification with the one that looks like us. But we follow a God who is no respecter of persons. And we follow God who plays favorites, does not, with race or gender or wealth or, or any of those things. God who has no favorites and loves everyone equally. And so, instead of going with our first instinct, which would be discrimination, right? That's an interesting word because it sounds so much like discernment. Starts with D-I-S-C. I just assumed they came from the same root, but they don't. They don't, they're very, very different. Discrimination is what happens when we begin with our ego identification 
and prefer what is like us. Discernment is when we set that aside and embrace how God sees the world, which is that, is that everyone is loved equally. That's hard to do. We need some help to train ourselves to do that, discernment. So that's when we turn to the book that you've been reading together, Practicing Our Faith. And in the chapter on discernment, he talks about an ancient source of wisdom, a guy named Ignatius of Loyola, who gave, wrote down several nice hints about how to practice discernment. I'm going to talk about a couple of those hints today. The first hint is that discernment always leads us toward being closer to the character of God. I don't want to say closer to God because I think we're never apart from God, but discernment helps us to grow closer to the character of God, to be like what God is. Closer to discipleship, which is another D-I-S-C word that has yet another root. So discernment is about moving towards the will of God. But I want to back up just a second with a note of caution as we talk about the will of God. Because a lot of us probably grew up in very harsh church backgrounds, right? That gave us a very harsh image of God as someone sitting up on a throne and knowing what God's will is but not going to give us any hints or any help. And if God's will was for you to wear yellow instead of wearing purple today, well, too bad for you, here comes the thunderbolt in this very arbitrary and capricious way. Does that sound familiar? Did anyone learn that kind of God? Does anyone believe in that kind of God? I don't. Because here's what the news is. There's a whole lot of things going on in your life God just doesn't care about. <laughs> Titans fan, Texans fan, God doesn't care. Okay, root for whatever team you want. Or maybe here's a better way of saying that. What God really cares about is that your life be as full and rich and joyful at its utter foundation as it possibly can be. That's what God really cares about. And so, in place of the harsh God, here's an image that I've read about that helps me. A spiritual writer named John McNeil was writing about a time he was really struggling to discern the will of God and, and he wasn't making progress and he really wanted to do what God wanted him to do and he was in prayer and, and, and he just burst out saying, God, what do you want me to do? And he said he heard a voice, clear as day. And the voice said, eh, I don't know. What do you want to do? Can you imagine that God? That's how God feels because God loves us so much. The absolute baseline, bottom line of discernment is knowing that above all else, 
God wants us to be fully and completely whole, beloved, and embraced. And if you're in a discernment process and you're leading away from that place, then you're doing it wrong. Because that's the foundation of what God wants in the world and what God wants for us. Okay? Now, sometimes we think something will make us happy and it really won't. If, you're an addic if we're in an addiction, we might think continuing on that path will really make us happy and God knows better. And so God does want something different than what comes to mind. So for cases like that, Ignatius has another suggestion, another hint. It'll sound familiar. If, you're, if you have a choice to make, let's say uh, you have a, a safe, secure, comfortable job, but you're thinking about quitting it and going back to school to follow your dream, that's a choice, that's an opportunity for discernment. And you're probably familiar with the strategy, we'll make a list. Write down all the advantages to one, write down all the advantages to another, and that'll help. Ignatius says pretty much the same thing, except he takes it further. He says, choose one path and really embrace it in your imagination and in your uh, visualization and take a long time. He says 30 days for that one choice and, and imagine what the, uh, uh, the possible uh, unexpected benefits might be, what the risks or hazards might be. Really live into that choice for however long, then do the same with the other choice, the same amount of time. But here's what he says that I'd never heard before and I think is really interesting. He says, choose the unfamiliar path first. The one that doesn't feel like your default mode. You probably, one of those paths, probably kind of feels like what you normally do. Maybe you're a cautious and risk-averse person. You know that about yourself. So really, you're leaning towards not quitting your job. If that's the case, he says, try on the other one first. Put yourself in an unfamiliar place, an uncomfortable place, a place outside your comfort zone, not your default mode. Try that one on first. May not turn out to be the right thing to do, but try the unfamiliar first, putting on another pair of shoes. So I have two stories today about people who tried these two hints in times of discernment. The first is the story from our gospel. You may be familiar with it and may know it as a story of the rich, young ruler. Although only Mark says he's rich, and only Matthew says he's young, and only Luke says he's a ruler. But there you go. And Mark's version of the story, it's very important that he is rich. And you saw a few verses down, Jesus talks very specifically about money how distracting it can be, how dangerous it can be, how money has the potential very easily to take us away from the things of God. So I don't want to dismiss that or deny that, that for Mark, the story really is about money. But looking from the lens of discernment, 
it's about something else too, I think. And to see that, we need to back up the context a little in the other direction. What happened just before this story? It's another familiar story. Jesus is talking to the disciples and a little child interrupts them. And the disciples get angry and try to shush her and push her away. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. This child, who in this culture has no power, no status, no standing whatsoever, she knows what it is to come into the community of God. You have to become like her. To enter the community of God, you have to set all those things aside and depend only on God to give you meaning and purpose in your life. She's got it right. Learn from her. And as soon as he says that, this guy pushes to the front of the line, gets in his face, and asks a very demanding question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think Jesus was just like, were you not listening? Did you understand nothing of what I said? What must I do? Well, you don't do anything. You can't do anything. That's my point. What must I do to inherit? He doesn't even say, what must I do to earn? eternal life. You can't even imagine earning. You can only imagine inheriting, because probably he has inherited everything he has, and that's how he sees the world. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's an interesting phrase in Mark. You know, Jesus never uses it ever, except a couple verses down in this reading when he's talking to the same guy who's using the language this guy presented. In Mark, Jesus doesn't talk about eternal life as if it were a commodity that you could acquire and put in your trophy case. Jesus doesn't talk about a ticket to heaven. He's not really concerned about that. Jesus talks about the community of God how God's spirit and presence is breaking in all around us if we only have eyes to see right here, right now, in this world, love, justice, and mercy of God matters now. And the life after will take care of itself, no, no doubt. But that's what Jesus emphasized, the community of God as it breaks in. And so, here's this guy pushy, entitled, obnoxious, and Jesus loves him. Jesus loves him anyway. And so he experiences that foundational, that first Ignatian principle of knowing God cares above all about the wholeness and fulfillment of each one of us, even that annoying man. Jesus loved him. And then the second principle. Try on a new reality. Try on something different. Try on a different set of shoes. Jesus looked at that man and said, you know what? 
You need to experience what it's like to be poor. You've never known that. You need to try it. Sell everything you have. Give it away. Then you'll be ready to discern the path to be close to me. Second story. A woman I met named Linda a few years back in Washington, D.C. I was at a class called the Church in the City. Part of the class, we visited churches that do really exciting urban ministry projects. One of those sites was called Luther Place. And they have a whole range of programs to help homeless women transition to a more independent life. Toured the facilities, everything was great. They had a panel, they all told their stories. First four women, I don't remember anything they said. But Linda, I've always remembered. Maybe because she invited us very directly to put on her shoes. She spoke last when it came her turn. At first, she said nothing at all for several long seconds. She just looked at us. And when she spoke, this is what she said. I am the scariest person you will meet today. I'm the scariest because I'm the most like you. You all have jobs, right? Checking accounts, money in the bank, roof over your heads. I had all those things too. And then she began telling the story of the bad luck and bad breaks and bad choices that she made that got her to a place of homelessness. And her story, a lot of her had to do with health care and not having access to what she needed. She had always been a large woman, but the year before and the year into homelessness, she gained an enormous amount of weight. What she didn't know and what the emergency room doctors couldn't or wouldn't figure out was that she had a tumor in her abdomen, a 90-pound tumor. If you can imagine carrying that around with you every day. She didn't discover it until one day, outside of a metro stop, she fell down in the middle of the street and could not get up. No one helped her. No one. Cars were honking. The security guard of the bank called 911, not for help, but said there is a roadblock that has to be removed. The police came took her to the hospital. They finally discovered the tumor. And, and Linda was, was, you know, had lots of questions. You know, what can we do? And the doctor said, well, you know, there is an operation, but it costs $150,000, and uh, you don't have insurance, and so we're not going to do it. Your life is not worth saving. They wrote that in a letter that she carries with her to this day. Your life is not worth saving. Well, it's discernment time for Linda, right? 
And what does she do? First, somehow, she connects with that sense of God's embracing foundational love. The world wasn't telling her that, the police, the hospital, nobody was telling her that she was God's beloved, but somehow she knew it and believed it. And then second, she decided to try on a different pair of shoes. Unlike the guy in the Bible story, she didn't have to try on being poor. She knew plenty about that. She tried on, what would my life be like if I had all the resources I needed to live into what God has planned for me? And once she tried that on, she remembered something. One of her former employers had been married to a doctor before they divorced. Why not? Why not try? She called her former boss, explained her story. The woman said, okay, give me a half hour. I'll call you back. A half hour later, Linda gets a phone call. The woman says, show up at the hospital at 7 a.m. on Friday. Your surgery is scheduled. She says, but, but it's $150,000 and I don't have insurance. Never mind. It's all taken care of. My husband persuaded the doctor to waive all fees. And so when I met Linda, she was healthy. She had a job. She had a checking account, money in the bank. She had a roof over her head. And every week she volunteered at Luther Place so other women like her would learn at the foundation God cares about nothing more than our wholeness and fulfillment and, and all that goes with that. Isn't that a nice story? We, We could just end right now, couldn't we? But we're not going to. Because there's one more thing I want to do. Sometimes when you learn or relearn a spiritual principle, it's a good idea to practice it before you go home and forget it, right? Okay? So we're going to practice putting ourselves in an unfamiliar place doing something we wouldn't normally do. We're going to do it together, and it's going to be fun, and you're going to love it, okay? Here's what we're going to do. July 1st of this year, I happened to be in Toronto. I, for, I was there for Gay Pride, and, and the MCC in Toronto does a pride service at the site in the morning, and I saw the program first thing in the program they're going to do is sing the National Anthem of Canada, which makes some sense because July 2nd was Canada Day, kind of like the 4th of July, so I thought, oh, they, they probably feel like they have to do it. But here's what was unexpected. They sang the National Anthem of Canada with these words. You'll see seven lines, seven different languages. Isn't that cool? The seven top languages of Canada they put into their national anthem. And we're going to sing it together right now. If you don't know the tune, uh, Mark is here to help. 
If you don't know how to pronounce these words, it doesn't matter. I don't either, and I have the mic. All right? It's not about getting it right. It's about stretching a little bit, putting yourself in someone else's experience and seeing how that feels as a step of discernment. So, here we go. Amen.